loving going through the Sermon on the Mount together. Uh, and as most of you know, this is probably Jesus' most famous teaching from all of Scripture. And some consider it to be the epitome of the teachings of Jesus and really the essence of Christianity. This is what Christianity is all about. This is really, uh, as I love to call it, this is the way of Jesus. Now, the sermon is Jesus' answer to the universal philosophical and religious question, question, how can a person truly be happy? Or what is the good life? Jesus seeks to answer that. And Jesus, the theme, the heart of the sermon is that Jesus wants his disciples to experience human flourishing and human wholeness through life in him, through following him and learning his way. Now, I say this each week, but I think it's good just to clarify, you know, this sermon is not rules that get us into the kingdom of God. As we saw in the very beginning, King Jesus is proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here, and then he is inviting his disciples into this kingdom life, this kingdom living. The sermon is not unobtainable standards just to get us to see that we can't possibly keep the rules, so we should stop trying and just thank God for grace, which, you know, we joked about this last week, right? Like, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, and that's it. That's not what this sermon is about either. The sermon is also not rules of how you have to behave now that you are part of God's kingdom, and if you don't, you might just get kicked out, right? The idea is to get the sermon into your bones, into your very being. The sermon is also not just a vision of what life will be like one day when God's kingdom physically is here on earth, but the possibilities of the sermon are available here and now in our lives and as we live with one another in community. Now, I believe that what Jesus is saying here is this, now that I am here, God's new world is coming into being. And when we realize that, we'll see that this sermon is about the habits of the heart which anticipate that new world, that kingdom of God, here and now. And so purity of heart, mercy, um, peacemaking, and whatever other virtue or characteristic is here, these are not things you have to do to earn a reward or payment that you make to God. They're not merely the rules of conduct now that you become a Christian, but they themselves are signs of the life of the kingdom of God, the kingdom which Jesus came to bring. Joachim Jeremiah, he says this, what Jesus teaches in the sayings collected in the Sermon on the Mount is not a complete regulation of the life of the disciples, and it's not intended to be. Rather, what is taught here are symptoms, signs, and examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world which is still under sin, death, and the devil, you yourselves should be signs of the coming kingdom of God, signs that something has already happened. It's interesting, isn't it? It's, what he's really saying here is by looking at our lives, other people should be able to see the kingdom of God at work, in action, present, and here. This is part of what Jesus wants to see happen through his disciples, that we would be signs, symptoms, and examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, still under sin, death, and the devil. 
See, Jesus as the true king teaches his disciples the way of life in the kingdom of God. And it's to be lived, it's to be practiced, it's to be cultivated here and now. This sermon is really about Jesus' own way of life that he is inviting us into in the midst of the brokenness of the world as witnesses to the coming kingdom of God. And as I've said before, this sermon has been used for centuries by God's people to form them in the way of Jesus and in the way of God's kingdom. And we are believing that that is exactly what Jesus will do in us as we, you know, come under his tutelage and practice his way of being. Now, we're getting into the part of the sermon now, and I warned you, right? This is the Jesus dojo. This is the part where Jesus is like, oh, yeah, I want to be fit. I want to be, you know, be healthy. And Jesus is like, okay, great. Grab my hand. Here we go. Take these weights. Hold them. Lift them. You're going to start working out, and you're going to hate it. It's uncomfortable. You're going to be uncomfortable. You're going to sweat, like, right? Like, this is the part that nobody actually likes to do. We like the big ideals, like life in the name of Jesus. Mm. It's like sign up for the Jesus dojo. He's like, I'm good. I've got my own regiment, right? But this is the part of the sermon that begins to get difficult, where Jesus really presses in, and he wants to go deeper, not just into our actions, but into our thought life, into our motivations, into our speech. Now, last week, we considered together how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and prophets, and how Jesus wasn't just claiming that the law and the prophets were true and right, or that he could like perfectly obey them, like he can do a perfect backflip or something, but that he himself is here as the longing and fulfillment of the story of Israel. The story of God and the story of the world, that it finds its completion, its fulfillment in him. And as Jesus takes center stage as the fulfillment and completion of the law and the prophets, he now begins to instruct disciples in his way of life and what kingdom righteousness looks like in our everyday living in a world filled with evil, sin, and brokenness. And so Jesus begins his teaching by talking not just about murder, but about hatred and about hateful speech. So here's the teaching. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So interesting, Jesus takes murder and the just judgment of murder, and he equates hatred and even hateful speech to that same level. Jesus begins his teaching on kingdom righteousness with probing much deeper into the heart in regards to the sixth prohibition in the Ten Commandments of the Law of Moses. Jesus says it's not enough to simply not murder someone, which, I mean, that's a pretty low bar, right? You ever, like, bring somebody home to meet mom and dad? Hey, this is Kathy. Guess what? 
she doesn't murder people. I'm like, wow, Kathy, it's great to meet you. Really nice that you're dating our son. Like, nobody does that. Jesus shows us that God's kingdom righteousness that he is inviting disciples into addresses and deals with all vengeful anger directly. It's deeper than just the action. It deals with all vengeful anger and avoids any speech that is degrading or dismissive of human beings. Now, there's this Hebrew term that we're given here, which is funny. Anytime that we keep the Hebrew in our English scriptures, isn't it? We should probably like think about that for a minute. But raka, which is one of those ones you can't say without going the right? Most likely this term came about because it's the sound you make when you clear your throat to spit. And so it's almost like, you know, metaphor like, this is how I feel about you. This is how low you are to me. That's the idea that's going on here. So Jesus isn't calling his kingdom people not simply to not be murderers, but to not be a people who would even hold on to anger, foster unforgiveness, or seek vengeance. In fact, he says to avoid any and all condemning, insulting, and dismissive speech. So see, Jesus wants to take us into deeper righteousness, deeper by going into the heart motivations that would lead people to hatred and eventually to murder. Now, the reason and the way that Jesus connects us is interesting, but I think we need to go back even further than the law of Moses. See, the commandment about murder went back all the way to Noah. Actually, in Genesis 9, God says to Noah and his family, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. So, a murderer will come into judgment. Why? For in the image of God has God made mankind. You see, behind the prohibition here in Genesis 9, we see that it is directly tied to a very high view of human beings. Scripture, and actually Scripture alone, teaches that each and every human being is made in the image of God, and their life is precious and sacred to God, and therefore their life should be seen as precious and sacred to us. And any action, speech, or thought that takes a low or dismissive view of humans can only then be described as coming from the true enemy of God and the enemy of humanity, who we call the Satan. And that's what we find again and again in scriptures that murder, hatred, envy, resentment, and bitterness are all characteristics not of God and his kingdom, but of the Satan and the kingdom of evil and darkness. Therefore, in Jesus' kingdom, it isn't just actions that Jesus is concerned about, but again, all thoughts and words that would degrade or objectify human beings. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, he simply puts it this way, our verbal arsenal is loaded with contemptuous terms, some with sexual, racial, or cultural bearing, others personally degrading. 
they should never be uttered. I don't know if you've ever found yourself maybe at the supermarket or coffee shop, you're just out and about, and you hear another human being speak to another human being with such speech that is so degrading. It's sickening to think that another human being would view someone, an image bearer of God, in this way. I'm reminded of the words of James in his letter. He says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. In other words, what James is saying there is this, this way is totally out of line with the way of Jesus and has no place in the kingdom of God. Now, I want to give a little clarification and then just kind of bring it into our context for a minute. Here's a question. Is Jesus teaching against ever getting angry? Some people are like, oh, the Bible says not to get angry. No, it doesn't. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. Actually, Paul says, get angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. The Psalms tell us again and again to pray our anger. Bring it to God. Talk to Him about it. Didn't Jesus get angry? Yes, he did. So I think Martin Luther had a good way of putting it when he talked about temptation. He said, I cannot help a bird flying over my head, but I can keep him from building a nest in my hair. And that's kind of the idea with our anger. We cannot help but get angry because there are many angering situations in our world. There's sin and brokenness, and there's broken promises. There's just hypocrisy. There's extortion and kidnapping and sex trafficking. There's slavery and abuse and world hunger. And we could go on and on and on and talk about the terrible things in the world that do make us angry and should make us angry. Not to mention, there's just aggravating people, aren't there? And there are aggravating situations that just seem to be part of daily life. So the question, I think, is what will we do with our anger? We can't help but get angry, but what will we do with our anger? And I want to take it a little bit deeper and ask this. What if our anger over these big issues begins to seep into our personal relationships and manifests itself between us and our children? our family members, co-workers, and neighbors, and we find ourselves seeing everyone who doesn't agree with us or isn't angry and outraged about the things we're angry and outraged about as our enemies, those to be resisted or stopped. What then? You know, this cultural moment that we're living in has been called by some the age of outrage. Everyone's angry. Everyone's outraged about everything all the time. And if you aren't, you must be ignorant, uninformed, or you're part of the problem. Now, the funny thing is this is predominant in the church as much as it is in the culture, with liberals as much as conservatives, right? So good luck trying to play the blame game. 
It's everywhere. I read messages and articles of pastors saying that if you aren't talking each week about the evils of abortion, sex trafficking of children, or the woke agenda of the left, you are part of the problem. You're a coward, and you have no business being a pastor or being in the pulpit. And if you try to appeal to the meek, peacemaking, merciful way of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll be told that those teachings are too liberal. And they mean, you know, politically liberal, of course. In fact, you should check out this article by Newsweek. It came out on August 9th. It was titled, Evangelicals Are Now Rejecting Liberal Teachings of Jesus. Interesting. Evangelicals are now rejecting liberal teachings of Jesus. So Russell Moore, he's the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, he's quoted in this article and says this, multiple pastors tell me essentially the same story about quoting the Sermon on the Mount in their preaching, to turn the other cheek and to have someone come up after to say, where did you get those liberal talking points? And when the pastor would say, I'm literally quoting Jesus Christ, the response would be, yeah, but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. He said, when we get to the point where the teachings of Jesus himself are seen as subversive to us Christians, we are in crisis. Now, we've been saying again and again that the teachings contained in the Sermon on the Mount are subversive. They are subverting the kingdoms of this world. They are subverting the kingdom of self. But to think that this kind of teaching would be subversive for Christians is deeply concerning. Now, in Jesus' teaching on anger, he is concerned with our personal relationships and not our politics and cultural issues. But when our politics and our perspective on cultural issues are radically disrupting our relationships with other human beings, causing us to hate and curse them, to wish that they were wiped off the face of the earth, if they would just go away, all the problems would be solved with our country. We need to stop and ask ourselves, why are we so angry? Which, interestingly enough, is the question that God asked Cain when he was angry with his brother Abel before he killed him. And I believe that this deep heart-searching question helps reveal whose kingdom we're actually living for and concerned about protecting and building. Is it the kingdom of self? the kingdom of the conservative party, of the liberal party, the kingdom of evangelical Christianity, the kingdom of Calvary Chapel, or is it the kingdom of Christ? The kingdom that is advancing, the kingdom that cannot be shaken by anything or anyone. Again, I believe the real question that Jesus wants to get after is, what will we do with our anger? Jesus has already told us that his people are being called to a way of being in this world that is humble, that is peacemaking and merciful. If we are to be those kind of people, then of course we must be a people who deal properly with our anger or our resentment. And so, what does Jesus want us to do with our anger? Jesus wants us to make peace. That's what he wants us to do.
Jesus turns vicious cycles of anger, disrespect, domination, and violence into transforming initiatives. I want to stop and just think about that for just one second. As a follower of Jesus, every difficulty in our life, each individual, what if we viewed those as transforming initiatives? One time, I'm going to tell you a little story about me and my dad, our family. That's a funny one. Brian's the hero. Um, so years ago, we were doing ministry together. I think I was like 17 at the time, something like that. And my dad saw that I was talking to a really difficult person. And he said, oh my gosh, I got to go help Char. I got to go save him. And then all of a sudden he thought, oh, you know what? This is really good for him. Why? What's he talking about? It's good for my character. It's good for me as a 17-year-old who thinks he knows everything and has, you know, very solid views on <laughs> what the world is all about and who cool people are and all these kind of things to be challenged to meet this other human being with dignity and respect, to give them my attention, to listen deeply to them, and to have to work through a difficult conversation with them. It's good for my character. It forms me. It shapes me. Well, so too as followers of Jesus, right? Actually, everything in our life can be a transforming initiative. What I'm saying is every day is an opportunity to live by faith. And that means to lean into Jesus in difficult situations with difficult people, to see that as an opportunity to practice Jesus' way and not just say, oh, no, 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 but this person's just really difficult, so I'll try with somebody else tomorrow. What if we saw each individual and each situation as a transforming initiative? So this is what Jesus wants us to do with our anger. He wants us to make peace, and he gives us two illustrations of what kingdom righteousness might look like for peacemaking. So the first illustration he gives us is peacemaking for the community of disciples. So he talks about a brother or a sister. So he's talking about the family of God first. And then he's going to talk about outsiders because he's talking about just somebody like suing you, right? So peacemaking for the community of disciples. What does Jesus want? He wants this. Make peacemaking a top priority. That's the takeaway from this. These are not commandments. These are principles that Jesus wants us to apply liberally to our lives. Now, let me read it, and then I'll make my comments. I'm going to get ahead of myself. Jesus says this, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go, first go, excuse me, and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Now, church, I think that this is one of those moments in Jesus' teaching where he's being funny right? Now, do you ever think about Jesus actually being funny, being sarcastic, being ironic? Because it's all over the Gospels. And I think this is one of those moments where Jesus is given a little wink, a little, you know, tongue in his cheek, right? Because just imagine, 
right? You live in this culture of Judaism where they have high holy days, high holy festivals, and there would be millions of people that would travel to Jerusalem for these, and they want to bring their gift to the altar to worship God, and there'd be lines and lines of people. They've got sheep, and they've got oil, and they've got wheat, and they've got all this stuff, and you've waited all day to offer your gift at the altar, and there you are at the very front. The priests are there, and all of a sudden you go, oh my gosh, somebody has something against me. Pause. Everybody just wait for me. I'll be back in an hour. What kind of festival, first of all, is going to be like, oh, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, we'll save your place in line. Go. Try doing that at Knott's Berry Farm. People get crazy. <laughs> See, he's being funny. Just imagine for you. It's your baptism. Corona Del Mar, there you go. You're going down into the water. Hold on. I got to go make something right. Or our most sacred ritual that we have as human beings is when two humans covenant to love one another till the end. Marriage. Can you imagine, ladies, being at the altar, right? You've been waiting. There he is. He looks amazing. Everything looks amazing. You're so excited. You don't want anything to go wrong or disrupt this moment. <gasps> oh my gosh, somebody has something against me. I got to go make it right. I'll be right back, Ken. Jesus is being funny. Because think about the kind of person that is so in tune with their personal relationships that they would prioritize peacemaking above the most sacred ritual that we have as human beings. What kind of person is that? We often associate Bible study, church attendance, giving and charity, communion, you know, community service with deep religious commitment. But Jesus puts the highest priority on the reconciliation of individuals higher than any religious act or observance. Priority number one for God's peacemaking people. Leave it at the altar. However important you think this religious ceremony or this religious act is, what God wants is peacemaking. It should be deeply convicting to all of us. Priority number one. Now, again, Dallas Willard, I love his insight here. He says, just think of what the quality of life and character must be in a person who would routinely interrupt sacred rituals to pursue reconciliation with a fellow human being. What kind of thought life. What feeling tones and moods, what habits of body and mind, what kind of deliberations and choices would you find in such a person? He says, when you answer that question, you will have a vision of the true rightness beyond that is at home in God's kingdom of power and love. I love that. Willard's talking about somebody who is actually deeply in touch with their soul. Deeply moved and affected that their life would cause disruption in relationship, deeply tied to the heart of Jesus and seeking to live that out in every relationship that they have. Now, early disciples of Jesus were so intent on keeping Jesus' teaching on dealing with anger and resentment that they would make space each gathering asking is there anyone that keeps anything against a brother or sister? 
Just that moment to check in with their soul. Am I all right with others? Does anyone have anything against me? You know, this still exists in liturgical churches today in what's called the passing of the peace. What a beautiful example of how to continually live as a peacemaker by keeping a rhythm and habit of examination of our own hearts and personal relationships. I don't know how many times we've come, you know, to a gathering and offered our gift at the altar, whether it's praise and worship, uh, taking communion, maybe giving to a cause, but all the while we're holding anger and bitterness toward a brother or sister. We're actively slandering and demeaning another Christian. And we might feel right with God because we're doing the things. We're doing the high holy rituals. We're reading our Bibles. We're praying. We're in fellowship. We're doing all the things that we should be doing that we think, right? All the while, we are living contrary to the way of Jesus and of this great principle that he gives us to forgive and to be reconciled. Jesus is basically saying that all that worship and prayer and whatever other religious work, it doesn't matter. That's not the priority. You cannot have peace with God while living in bitterness and hatred toward another person. John puts it this way. He says, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister, they're a liar. No, 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 you're confused. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So what does Jesus want us to do with our anger? He wants us to make peace, but he wants us to make peace a top priority. That is the principle that he gives us first. Now the second I said it regards peacemaking with those outside the community. Jesus wants us to make peace quickly. Make it a priority and do it quickly. So he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. There's a lot of maybes there, right? Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So, in this illustration, you're being sued. The person obviously doesn't will good against you, right? They're trying to do you harm. How should a disciple of Jesus respond to a situation or an individual like this? You know what Jesus says? Settle it quickly. Now, this expression in the Greek means, or can mean, to make friends to be well disposed to someone, or to be in agreement with someone. So the idea here is to come to a mutual agreement or consensus on the matter, and Jesus says, do it. Make it snappy. Make it happen. I think it's interesting here that rather than getting into all the details of who is right, who is wrong, the injustice and unfairness of the situation or of the courts or whatever it might be, Jesus directs his people to work for understanding and mutuality through clear communication. We just lost the art of civil discourse, haven't we? When we're talking about speech, you can just view examples of what we're talking about 
online, all over the place. The way that human beings speak to one another. The lack of hearing one another. Well, Jesus wants us to settle matters, to come to an agreement with those people who have something against us. You know what that takes? That takes probably meeting with them face to face. You have to view the human being. You have to see them, see their body language, hear intonation, tone. And you have to listen deeply to them in order to really come to consensus, don't you? You have to really hear what they're saying and even what they're saying underneath what they're saying. And then hopefully you have that opportunity as well to actually share, oh, this is what's going on with me. This is why I reacted the way that I did. Not excusing it, whatever. This is where I'm at. This is the thing underneath the thing. Hearing their heart, you having the opportunity to express your heart. That's what Jesus wants from his people. Now, Jesus does not promise that we will come out on top. This isn't like a math equation, right? Or if you do this, then may the odds ever be in your favor, right? There's none of that here. His concern, rather, is your character, my character, our formation in his image as his people. And that comes as we work through broken trust and broken relationships and work for peace. And we've been talking about this, but Jesus' vision for his people is that reconciliation and peacemaking would come from within. It's the kind of people that we are. And, you know, it starts with those closest to us. Our relationship with, you know, your spouse, your kids, your roommate, your parents, your siblings, the community of Christ, co-workers, friends, enemies, nations. See, Jesus' point is that we must be intentional about reconciliation and peacemaking for it to become a way of life. Priority. Do it quickly. And this can only happen as we make time and space in our lives to sit and be in touch with our souls and the Spirit of God, praying, searching, and discerning, where do I need to make reconciliation? Now, there's a deeper level to say, is there anyone who has anything against me, isn't it? It's one thing to say, like, oh, I'm fine with everybody. But it's like, oh, is everybody fine with me? That's a deeper level. And to make regular time in our spiritual formation and following Jesus, to do that, to take stock, that's a deeper level. There's a spiritual practice called an examine. You guys ever heard of that? But in the examine, you usually take it at the end of the day, and you just kind of walk through a series of questions. When did I feel closest to God? When did I feel, you know, at home in my own soul or most connected to an individual? And so we kind of try to touch that moment, think, okay, I want to cultivate that kind of space, that kind of thought life to do that. Okay, now where did I feel most disconnected from God? disconnected from myself or disconnected from my neighbor. 
and then to also pay attention to that. This is the kind of deep work that will lead us into this deeper work of peacemaking, is being in touch with our souls. Remember, the big idea behind all character formation is to practice these things in both big and small ways again and again and again so that when those moments in life happen, when they come, that you would have thought you could never forgive. You would never make peace. You would never reconcile that that is exactly what you do because you've been practicing it and it has become part of your very being as a disciple of Jesus. Guys, that's virtue. That's deep, deep God-like character. That's what Jesus wants to form in his people. Now, I just want to make one more comment on this, and then we'll close with a few thoughts. Now, I think many times we try and find excuses for how impractical or idealistic Jesus is here. Statements like, so I always have to do this every time. Every time somebody has something, how could I even know that? Or, well, what if they refuse to re reconcile? What then? And I believe these questions miss the point in the illustrations that Jesus is giving. Remember, they're not commands. They're illustrations about a principle to be a peacemaker. The point is the cultivation of the heart and bringing it into line with the rightness of God's kingdom culture of love, of forgiveness, and reconciliation. Again, Willard, so insightful here. He says, we do not control outcomes and are not responsible for them, but only our contribution to them. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about you your contribution to these situations. And then he asks some great questions here. He says, does our heart long for reconciliation? Have we done what we can? Honestly, do we refuse to substitute ritual behaviors for genuine acts of love? Do we mourn for the heart of our brother or sister's anger and what it is doing in their own soul, what it's doing to us and to others around us? If so, we are beyond the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and immersed in God's way. I encourage you to take this maybe as a list just for your own self and your own personal relationships. You know, I have to think like, Okay, I don't have to be best friends with everybody. You know, it, sometimes in relationships, you know, we can make reconciliation, but things are not the same as they were. But I always check my heart. Do I want good for that individual? Do I want good? Do I want blessing? Do I want goodness for them? And if I can say yes, then I believe that I have actually forgiven that individual. And I actually have made the kind of reconciliation that Jesus is talking about here. If that's my heart posture toward someone, and I'm not talking about that I've left off like the practical things that I also need to do, but I'm just saying as regards my heart, if I can say, no, I want good for them, I want blessing, I want wholeness for them, then I believe I am right in line with the way of Jesus here. Now, 
I want to close by talking just simply about like, okay, wow, how, how do I actually do this? Because some of us have experienced a depth of broken trust that you would not worship, wish upon your worst enemy. Stabbing in the back, defaming of your character. That could be mothers and fathers, that could be brothers and sisters, that could be dearest friends. We've experienced deep brokenness as human beings. Human beings, even though we're made in the image of God, man, not everything we do actually images God, does it? Quite the opposite. And we wield terrible destruction with our actions, with our words, and even with our thoughts. So how do we forgive? How do we actually make peace? And the resounding voice of Scripture would say that we forgive, we make reconciliation and pursue peace, always keeping in mind the costly peace that God has brought through Jesus Christ. Scripture also tells us that those that belong to Jesus have the spirit of the peacemaking God at work in them. The spirit of Jesus who has made peace between us and God has taken up residence in our life and is working in us both to will and to do God's pleasure. So we have Christ's example. We are recipients of his grace. We also have the power of God at work in us, the peacemaking God. And I mentioned this earlier, but I believe that every controversy, every broken relationship is an opportunity for the Spirit of Jesus to work his peacemaking way into us. And we do that by making peace and putting it to Jesus' account. That's what we do. This is where we have to remember that following Jesus means we are people of the cross. Everything we do is cross-shaped. Our humility, our self-sacrifice, our service, our peacemaking, everything is via, through the cross, by way of the cross, marked by the cross. And it's in these moments of the deepest broken trust and deepest broken relationships, maybe more than any other, that the work of the cross of Jesus can become real to us. What do I mean by that? Because it's not only my sin that was paid for and dealt with at the cross, but it's also the sin that was done to me. Actually, in fact, at the cross, sin done by me, sin done to me, even sin done in my presence that defiles me. All of these were and are dealt with on Jesus' cross. He took the burden of the sin of the world upon himself. A few weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus is the sin eater. He swallows it, and it destroys him so it doesn't destroy us. 
This is what Jesus has done for us. And I must, therefore, hand my anger over to God and allow the cross to be the final judgment, not only of my sin, but also the sin done to me. Remember, Jesus tells us this amazing parable about an unforgiving or unmerciful servant. Now, the servant owes their master some exorbitant amount of money. And, I mean, it's literally going to ruin them. They're going to have to go, you know, to prison and work the rest of their life to pay this debt off. And the master just, at the word, he just forgives it. No, you don't owe me a thing. I forgive you. All the debt. The servant goes out, can't believe it, finds a friend, someone that owes him, you know, a pithy amount of money, strangles the individual, screaming at him, throws him in jail. You're going to pay me back everything you owe me. The other servants of the master go and report, and this servant is brought back to the master, and the master says, you wicked servant. I forgave you so much, and you couldn't forgive the small amount. The point that Jesus is making here is, man, if this is our kind of response, we don't get it. If this is the way we live with other human beings as God's people, we don't really understand what we've been forgiven, how much we've been forgiven. Now, a few weeks ago, I was, we were taking communion together as a staff, and we were actually doing a spiritual discipline of communion. And so what we did is we read through John 13, which is the foot washing scene before Jesus goes to the cross. Some of you might be familiar with this, but it's the story where Jesus washes each of the disciples' feet. And then when he comes to Peter, you know, there's this whole thing where Peter's like, oh, you can't wash me. And Jesus is like, well, if I don't wash you, then, you know, we have no fellowship, no friendship. You can't be with me. And Peter's like, okay, then wash all of me, you know. And he's like, I only just need to wash your feet. The rest of you is clean. And through this foot washing act, Jesus says, I have served you, I have loved you, and we understand that this is actually just a picture of what Jesus would do at the cross. That there at the cross, Jesus is not just washing our feet and the dirt and the filth that comes on our feet, but our whole self. And he's deeply connecting us to him, to his person. Now, as we begin to read this passage together, I thought about, man, like if that's like a picture of my sin, like that Jesus is washing it away with every stroke. Man, what would it look like if every selfish thing I had ever done, everything I had ever done to my own body, the ways that I had sinned against my own soul, the way that I had, you know, just abused my own actual physical body, the way that I abused other people with my words, objectified them, sexualized them, whatever I did in my life, all these selfish acts, what we call sin, what would that look like if that was concentrated on one single human being? What would the toll on their body look like? And I don't know if any of you have, you know, read any of the classics, but I was reminded of Oscar Wilde's uh, a portrait of Dorian Gray. Anybody familiar with that story? Okay, it's a fascinating story. In the portrait of Dorian Gray, he's granted this wish that basically he can live the most wicked, selfish, degrading lifestyle and never feel an ounce of guilt or weight. It won't phase him whatsoever. So he goes out and he commits the most atrocious things, murder, rape, everything. But what happens 
is that everything that Dorian Gray is doing is reflected in this portrait that hangs on his fireplace mantle. And by the end of the story, it is, is horrific what he looks like. Subhuman, a beast of a man. And I just started thinking, my gosh, when Scripture says that my sin, it's the sin done to me, the sin done by me, the sin done in my presence is laid on Jesus Christ. It's like that picture of Dorian Gray. Jesus takes it all, and I'm unscathed. I'm free. I'm forgiven. I'm whole. This is what the gospel is all about. Christ taking our sins in our place so we could be the free, forgiven people of God. And Jesus would say to us, go and do likewise. As I have made peace through the blood of my cross, now go and make peace, be reconciled. That is Jesus's instruction to us. He has gone before us and the power of his spirit is in us to do just this. And let me just say this, we need to close, but if you feel yourself, just these things come up again and again, I thought I forgave that, I thought I worked through that, what should I do? Well, Peter asked a similar question to Jesus in the context of the unforgiving servant. He says, Lord, if somebody sins against me, do I forgive them seven times? That's pretty good. Jesus is like, no, you know, 77 times, some translations, 70 times seven, 490. Okay. What Jesus is saying is keep on forgiving. Keep on forgiving. Keep on forgiving. Keep bringing it to the cross of Jesus. Keep handing it over to God, trusting in his justice, trusting in his goodness, keep handing it over to Jesus and allow his peacemaking spirit to work in you. See, those who would conform their lives to the way of the life described in the Sermon on the Mount will find themselves transformed into peacemakers as a consequence of God's work among them. It's not a matter of obeying a command to become a peacemaker or striving after an abstract virtue called peacemaking but rather it is a matter of our participation in the life of the risen Jesus, who is our peace, who is our virtue. Peacemakers are who we become as we follow Jesus and as his life is formed in us. And so church, may it be so with us. May we be known as a peace making community who love one another well, that confront our sins and failures against one another with mercy, with grace, with peace. And may this surrounding community experience the effect when hundreds of people choose the peacemaking way of Jesus together.